it turns out if you want to absorb 50 billion tons of greenhouse gases, you would need to plant 1 trillion more trees on the planet today. And then again, 1 trillion is a big number, right? So the Amazon jungle has roughly three to 400 million trees. So you're talking about planting three Amazon jungles to absorb just one year's emission, not the few decades that we've been doing this in the past. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Making of the SRE Omelette podcast, where we talk about how we achieve business and client success via the practice of site reliability engineering. Season two is all about how the practice of SRE can play a big part in helping and leading us to a more sustainable future. Here to highlight why we should act now is Rishi Vash. Rishi is a VP and CTO of IBM Sustainability Software. He has championed IBM's sustainability efforts, formulated strategy, and built products to help make it possible for IBM and our clients to turn ambition into reality. I'm so excited to have him here with us today. Welcome to the show, Rishi. Hey, thank you so much, Kevin. Uh, great to be here. I think you have an amazing show. You've got a, a superb theme. I love talking about sustainability. Looking forward to this. Thank you for the kind words, Rishi. Really appreciate your support as well as motivation to get me started in the first place. And I appreciate you spending the time here with the community to talk about your favorite subject of sustainability. Absolutely, my pleasure. Rishi, can you get us started by sharing with us what does sustainability mean to you? I think it's a broad term. I think when most people think about sustainability, they tend to weigh in a little bit more on greenhouse gas footprint and carbon footprint. And yes, that's definitely one of the key aspects of sustainability. But I think it extends over all three dimensions of environmental, social, and governance. And just being ethical in the way that you do your business, all the way from front end, what you're selling customers to downstream to your supply chain, the way you source goods and the way you treat people, you know, throughout that whole kind of life cycle. So it is definitely much more than just carbon footprint, or as Christina cautioned us, carbon tunnel visioning. Definitely. Yeah, it's much more than that. I think we do have a massive problem with carbon for sure. <laughs> a lot of our portfolio <laughs> is uh, structured around that. I think depending on who you listen to, the problem is super urgent to just urgent, but I don't think anyone can be casual about it <laughs> anymore. Speaking of taking it more seriously, Rishi, I remember listening to your keynote at SRE conference at IBM and you spoke of sustainability by the numbers. That was a powerful message. Can you share it with the audience here? Absolutely, Kevin. I think this is one of my favorite <laughs> kind of conversations with anybody who's just uh, tuning in. You know, hey, if you're an ace uh, in sustainability, you probably know this already. But I like to think about sustainability in terms of a few big numbers. I certainly respond to big numbers better than anything else. One big number, or say one dimension, is this what impact are we having on the environment, right? One big number there is a number 50 billion. That represents the tons of greenhouse gases that we emit into the atmosphere as a, a human species today. So, okay, the first time I came across a number, you know, 50 billion, I'm like, hey, that sounds big. What, what does it actually uh, kind of yeah. mean? So it turns out if you want to absorb 50 billion tons of greenhouse gases, 
you would need to plant one trillion more trees on the planet uh, today. And then again, one trillion is a big number, right? So the Amazon jungle, not the company, <laughs> has <laughs> roughly three to 400 million trees. So you're talking about oh, planting wow. yeah. three Amazon jungles to absorb just one year's emission, not the few decades that we've been doing this in the past. So I think we are having a real impact on the environment. Another big number to sort of gauge how big that impact is, is 145 billion. That represents the damage that climate and weather had in the US in the year 2021. So just in one year, we lost life, we lost property, you know, we damaged homes, we damaged industry, Fire, we damaged flood. agriculture through IF floods, fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, you name it. In just one calendar year, that's 145 billion. And, and this impacted everyone, right? Like, uh, I live in California. Fires is a huge problem here. You know, we've had people, uh, colleagues of ours, in fact, that have been uh, impacted by severe hurricanes up and down the East Coast. Look, it, it's just getting worse. <laughs> this season, in fact, we had snow in, uh, down the bike path that I go riding here in California. Oh. I live in the Bay Area. And right. I've, never, I've been living here 25 years. I have, on that particular pass, I have never seen snow before. This time, <laughs> there were two inches of snow. <laughs> wow. So. I mean, we, we had ice in Texas, right? Absolutely, yeah. I would take those two numbers as a good proxy mm -hmm. for kind of what the impact is and you know, what can we actually see with uh, climate change. What impact is this having on people and how are they changing their behavior? I think that's the other interesting dimension. Mm -hmm. One number really surprised me. It's uh, 75%. So it turns out that 75% or three out of four people are likely to change the brand that they buy from based oh. on their knowledge of its sustainability and environmental and social uh, profile. So that, that's a huge number. So imagine yourself, you're walking down your favorite mm -hmm. grocery store aisle and you see four people in front of you. Three of them might choose a different product when they pick it from the shelf if they just knew what the sustainability profile for that product happened to be. That's massive. That gets the attention of CEOs and, uh, and CMOs. Right. And I think the last big number I'll leave you with is truly big. <laughs> 68 trillion. That represents the dollars of funds that climate conscious investors control. These investors choose to invest these funds in companies that are sustainable and choose to not invest it in companies that are not sustainable. And just to give you a sense for how big 68 trillion is, because again, that number didn't really add up for me when I heard it the yeah. first time. If you had access to that, Kevin, you would be <laughs> able to buy every single, <laughs> every single company on every single public stock exchange on the planet and still have money left over to buy a few apples. And when I say apples, I'm not referring to the fruit. I'm referring to the company. The company, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that gets the attention of the board of directors. Wow. Like uh, They need yeah. to make sure that their companies are investing in a responsible social and environmental way mm -hmm. uh, so that they can then attract funds from investors as well. Those are some amazing and also scary numbers. I'll see if my memory is good enough to recall and get into some in more detail. <laughs> you mentioned that the damage of climate change has led to over... 140 billion in a single year. Now, Rishi, we must have saw it coming, right? Was there an aha moment that led to countries and companies to say, we must act now? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I think the aha moment has been different for different, different people in different parts of the globe. Mm. The way I look at this is, 
If you track the direction of environmental legislation, I think one of the earliest mm-hmm. countries to have it is probably Australia. Then it was Europe. I think California has been noticing this for a while and we've put this on our agenda for quite a bit of time, but not all the other countries in the world, including the US at a federal level, have really enacted something severe enough. So I think the realization was there uh, for a while. I think people have been going to climate summits for a while and recognize the fact that this is something we've got to watch out for. I don't think the average person has experienced this kind of, I'd say, dramatic and drastic weather such that we've been doing over the last couple of years here. So I think it's becoming much more democratized, the understanding that weather and climate is really impacting all of our lives in a much more extreme way than uh, ever before. The other number was interesting to me was 75%. That is 75% of consumers will choose a brand that is more sustainable. Rishi, what is your inside percentage of people if the sustainable brand is more expensive? I think there's probably off those 75, I would guess 25% might still be insensitive to a little bit of extra price. So yes, I think there's some amount of price elasticity built in there. But I think as we go forward, Kevin, it's just going to become a normal kind of way of doing business. Yeah. You know, you're not going to ask so much. It's just going to be a requirement <laughs> for doing, uh, doing business. Another way to think about this one is when for the first time people had to get their financial statements audited to be listed on a public stock exchange. Mm. I don't think it was a popular thing to do. <laughs> it, was, uh, right. it was like, oh, well, guess what? If you're going to take public money, then you sort of need to go through these basic checks mm. and balances. Mm. I'd like to see the world get to the point where uh-huh. we're not having to convince people to get a more sustainable brand. We just have sustainable brands. You know? <laughs> that is a great point. I always feel that company or people need to be motivated to change their behaviors. So either a carrot or a stick to keep on adding analogies to this podcast. Rishi, what stage do you think we're in right now with sustainability behavior changes? I know it's kind of viewed as carrot and stick. I don't think it's necessarily has to be that way. There's enough correlation to show that if you operate your business more efficiently, you will also be operating in a much more carbon efficient manner. So there's a direct correlation between operational efficiency, which you just need to do to run a good business, as well as running it efficient from a carbon footprint perspective. So I think to that extent, it's a built-in incentive to go do that. And I think we need to help companies connect the dots together. I think that's where I I see a gap in uh, the market today. And and that's sort of the mission of uh, our uh, portfolio. I think on the social side, we shouldn't have to ask that question. (laughs) I think uh, people should operate their businesses in a manner that's fair. And that should just be table stake for operating businesses. Speaking of operational efficiency, it is a perfect time to bring the conversation closer to SRE. Rishi, you have the audience here, site reliability engineers, both people who are practicing or inspired to join the profession. Any call to action you have for the community on what people can do to help? Absolutely. If you go back to the pie chart of where emissions come from, depending on which surveys you look at and how you count it, somewhere between 7 to 10% of emissions today come from data centers. And this is only about to grow. Chat GPT has been in, in the news, would have had to be under 
uh, <laughs> under the rock for a long time if you miss that. Right, <laughs> right. You know, most people on this uh, podcast are going to be techies. So they, they'll know sort of the underlying technology is foundation models and these large mm-hmm. language models. They have a really, really large parameter set to get tuned. And the short version of the story is in the amount of energy it takes to train one of these large models, you could power a medium-sized city for a few days. Okay, so wow. as site reliability engineers, you're operating infrastructure that does consume a massive amount of power. And much like I said, anytime you focus on making your business more efficient, it's very highly likely to have a positive carbon energy footprint impact as well. Same is true with SRE. I would ask all of your engineers to be cognizant of what is the capacity that you've got provisioned in your cloud today. Do you need all that capacity? Yes or no. Can you scale things up, which is great, but when you don't require the capacity, (laughs) Can you scale them down as well? I think super important to do. Are you using the most uh, efficient form of uh, technology stack today? Mm. Uh, What can you do to modernize it to make things uh, much more streamlined? Simple, you know, it's funny. I've been in this uh, space of, say, infrastructure management for a while now. Just turning machines off. When you leave a room, turn the lights off. (laughs) (laughs) When when you're done with a machine in your data center, power it down, you know. (laughs) Uh, with the virtual machine, you know, shut it down yeah. and reclaim that capacity. So all the way from simple things to complex yeah. things like redoing your architecture can have a massive sort of benefit on the footprint. One other thing I'll mention, which not a lot of people think about, but you can also choose what data center you want to deploy your assets mm. into. You know, much like that 68 trillion of investors can pick <laughs> the companies they want to invest sure. in. You can say, hey, I want to go deploy mm. my footprint on a data center that's powered mostly by renewable energy. In that case, yes, you're going to consume an energy footprint. But if the energy footprint is renewable, you know, you've suddenly brought down the carbon footprint of your workload quite dramatically. Is there any aspect there you'd like me to dig into more, Kevin? Because I think making workloads efficient, as you know, is one of the (laughs) key uh, OKRs I've got for my team, (laughs) for sure. Interesting you mentioned efficiency. I remember talking to Jerry Kumo and Ron Baker that I felt performance tuning and optimization is a lost art. This will show my age, <laughs> but I remember JVNs were only 500 megabyte or at most a gig. <laughs> and we had only one or two of them. And it takes days, if not weeks and months to get more. And because of that, we had to do profiling to understand what were consuming the memory, number of compute cycles, and in turn, make the code more efficient. These days, I feel we are spoiled with technologies that we can just easily scale up and down, as you mentioned. (laughs) So the perception is that it is not worth the effort to spend the time to optimize. Rishi, should we bring more of that art back to your point of being efficient? Yeah, certainly. I think there's one other aspect there, you know, Kevin, the more and more workloads you've got that are cookie cutters versus unique, the easier it is to achieve some of that scale as well. Mm-hmm. Part of the benefit of the cloud is just rapid scale. You know, that's the reason uh, Kubernetes and whatnot were born is to be able to run Google Cloud and scale these workloads up. But uh, they were able to achieve that efficiency because they did make them pretty cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. You know, you could swap workloads in and out without too much uh, pain and very low overhead of startup time, etc. So... I agree with you. I think we could spend a lot more time making our workloads efficient versus just uh, 
wrapping them up in containers and, <laughs> and running them. Yeah. And it's going to be something that I think comes back, not just because of the efficiency on cost, but I think also because of the efficiency on uh, carbon. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I have a question yeah, for yeah. you, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. You've been in the SRE profession for uh, a really long time. You know, as you've spoken to some other folks in the audience, what's their take on sustainability and uh, energy and footprint or just raw efficiency? I'm curious what you've got from uh, some of the other folks you've been talking to. Hmm, interesting question, Rishi. I will say I haven't yet got organic conversation that started from that perspective. We had some of those when we were running the hackathon. But typically, the conversation has often been, hey, let's automate to reduce toil. Let's right size to reduce cost. And oh, as outcome of that, we are also contributing to be more sustainable. I do think it is a great question to get us to turn it around in that let's start the conversation by asking how can we be more sustainable and with it surface things we can do in the practice of SRE to contribute to it. I would say, Rishi, let's come back to this in a few months' time yeah. and see how we have <laughs> changed it around to start the conversation from the sustainability perspective. Absolutely. And the reason I'm asking, Kevin, is... Uh... As you speak to a bunch of different people and you have so many different people listening to your podcast, just seeding that conversation and that question to every one of them, I think would have a massive impact. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a really good question to ask. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you one interesting use case. I won't name names mm -hmm. because uh, we're not allowed to. <laughs> and we, we're still in the process of working through this, but so we've talked about energy a fair amount, right? But waste is another mm -hmm. big aspect of uh, sustainability. In data centers, the way people power up servers, you know, you plug in power, but almost all of the racks have a UPS tied to them, like an uninterrupted power supply to take care of fluctuations in the inbound power, right? That UPS has um, usually batteries that have to be recycled. Lithium-ion batteries are the most uh, typical kind. Now, picture a data center that has thousands and thousands of racks and thousands and thousands of these UPS batteries. These batteries have to be monitored for whether they have enough capacity in them, yes or no. They have to be swapped out. And when they're swapped out, since uh, it's not an environmentally friendly product to uh, just uh, dispose of, you need to have a good idea of where you're storing these batteries and have you recycled them appropriately, you know, yes or no. So depending on which side of the SRE profession you're on, if you're in that data center profession as well, you can definitely use some of our technologies. I'm not going to pitch our products directly here, but you can certainly use some of our technologies to keep track of all of these kinds of assets as well and make sure that they're being responsibly tracked, they're being responsibly disposed of. So it is not just software, I guess was my point. <laughs> For people who mess with hardware, it's a hardware challenge as well. You know, Rishi, it is interesting you mentioned UPS. In fact, just last year, I had to replace the UPS I have at home. Instead of buying a new UPS, I was happy to see that I could just replace the battery. So there were some savings as well as being more sustainable. <laughs> However, <laughs> similar to all things powered by batteries, to improve the lifespan of them, typically the recommendation is not to charge them to 100%. But what are those batteries charged at for the UPS? 100%. <laughs> so I agree with you. Perhaps 
there is a solution to improve the life of the batteries, or even are there more sustainable ways of the what if than a UPS? Absolutely, Gavin. Thank you for another great call to action. And Rishi, you got me thinking when SRE started, it was very much to balance the fight between operation and development. Because if you pay me to keep lights on and to keep the SLA, then the easiest I can do is to not let people make changes <laughs> because that would minimize my risk. And the same is true. Rather than just provision enough capacity, it is safer for me to over-provision because I know it is tough to explain to my VP, oh, we were down because we tried to save some electricity. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps, and sorry to put you on the spot, as a senior business executive, yeah. Rishi, what would you say to practitioners who may worry about that? <laughs> no, I have a pragmatic point of view on this one, like Kevin. Sometimes you are the cloud. We have products, I mean, you know these, that we operate in our portfolio where they sit on physical servers, they're plugged into actual power supplies and uh, dual networks, et cetera, et cetera, and, and we operate them. In that case, if you are the cloud, the best thing that you can do is give your customers, you know, which in this case uh, would be application authors, the best possible insights into where they could achieve efficiency. That way, you could accommodate more workloads in the same physical uh, infrastructure. Think about it as the number of applications running per CPU, the density could mm -hmm. increase. If you physically are the cloud, then you're somewhat limited in you know, what you can do from a server perspective because they're physical machines, but you can guide people that write applications in terms of where to make that sort of constriction happen. I agree with you. You do need to plan for capacity. In fact, one of the products in our portfolio order management, which deals with e-commerce uh, spikes at Thanksgiving. Black Friday. <laughs> That's a workload yeah. where it wouldn't be acceptable to say, hey, we ran out of machines. <laughs> so you don't need to, you don't need to kind of yeah. price that in. But even though those questions come up pretty often, they tend mm -hmm. to be exceptions. Mm -hmm. And again, I won't name names, but I was uh, just looking across uh, a whole bunch of different uh, development teams and looking at what the uh, footprint for development instances was on cloud. <laughs> and it's yes. remarkable how many people don't oh. even know that they have these machines <laughs> like running from some project they did like a year ago. So I don't think we're at this spot where the last thing left to do is for that one workload you know, that is mission critical for like three weeks in the year. I think there's a lot yeah. of opportunity <laughs> behind That's that. True. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at it, this is how Amazon got started, right? Like they had machines, they would keep hitting their peak and saying, hey, guess what? Now we can rent the extra out for the remainder of the year. And they kept growing that business to the point where you know, now yeah. this is a business unto itself. So yeah, hopefully that answered your question, uh, Kevin. I think you can always look at things and turn them into an opportunity depending on how you can look at the problem. <laughs> yeah, it is all a matter of perspectives, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Rishi, I agree 100% on the development environment. Often it is overlooked. In fact, I probably have a few that I don't even know of. I better go check after this session. <laughs> so, Rishi, thank you so much for sharing those wonderful stories and examples. I know you gave me so many ideas just over the last half an hour. And I have no doubt you have also inspired many listeners as well to jump on this great cause. Rishi, what would you say to a chief sustainability officer who may be listening to get started? 
I'm glad you asked that question, Kevin. I'll answer it in the context of SRE, but I think it applies more broadly here today as well. I find that pretty often most people think about the chief sustainability officer as someone who's going to help report and produce a report, you know, kind of like the impact report that IBM uh, produced. And so their expectation is, oh, it's going to be a reporting activity and, and yeah, that's it. I think as a chief sustainability officer, if you can demonstrate to your business owner, which in this case might be the person responsible for SaaS or operations, that you can actually help them get better insight into their operation and help them make their operations more efficient and leverage that in the reporting function, which is required, I think they will succeed much more. So the message would be build a partnership with those business executives that are running the operational processes and show them how you can help them get more efficient as well as leverage that in the reporting function for carbon and energy. Make it actionable. Help your business colleagues make it actionable so that they can make a difference in their own businesses too. I think that's the biggest gap that I see as I talk to our customers and bridging that gap, I think, will be the most successful for sustainability officers. I love that, Rishi, knowing you're not alone in doing it and build the partnership, influence and collaborate to achieve the goals together. And Rishi, any words of wisdom for the site reliability engineers as well? I think the biggest thing I'll say is we're actually at a super interesting time in the industry today. People talk about digitization and yes, it's been going on for a long time, but this whole notion of companies completely switching to becoming software companies and mm. specifically software as a service companies, I think is remarkable. Yeah. I also think as site reliability engineers, you can also push the bounds on kind of what you bring into that quote unquote site part of site. You know, it used to be just thought of mm. as uh, true, data true, centers true. and applications running there, but applications run on edges, they run in cars, they run in so yeah. many different places. and uh, they still need those applications to be kind of reliable with some of the same tenets as uh, SRE. Yeah. So I think my guidance would be understand the fact that you're at a remarkable stage in the evolution of technology and, and software mm. today. Look at some of the non-traditional tools. Look at what AI is doing in the space too. I've always liked to have some data scientists sitting with yeah. site reliability engineers to help assess, you know, what is the most efficient way to run this workload? I don't want to say look at chat GPT, but <laughs> leverage machine learning. I think it could really help in some situations. So stay abreast of these modern technologies and then extend your reach into the applications too so you can help the applications on top of that infrastructure you know, mm. run in a much more efficient manner. That is a great takeaway. Using tools and data to help us and taking reliability engineering up to the life cycle and influencing how we build it at the application tier. So Rishi, in closing, and I'd like to go back to the inspiration of the omelet, <laughs> what would be your ingredient and recipe for us to achieve a sustainable future? I look at it in four pieces, and I think if you close that cycle and you close it diligently, we'll get onto this journey of becoming much more sustainable. I don't think that we'll ever like completely get there, but I think you've got to measure where you are uh, today in terms of your footprint. So I think measurement is critical. I think reporting is the second thing. So being transparent about where you are, I think is also important. In some cases, it'll be a stick, like you pointed out. In some cases, uh, a carrot, uh, because you know, you'll have customers buying your product. So it's a measure, it's a report. Analyze across your landscape, where are those hotspots where you can actually make a difference? 
And the most important thing is then act. The fourth one, close that loop and act. Make sure that you actually change the operational process itself. And then keep doing this loop over and over again. You measure, report, analyze, and adapt. And I think that'll change you into an organization that's continuously going down this path of becoming much more sustainable. And as we expand this out to all organizations, I think we'll get there. Measure, transparent reporting, analyze, and close the loop by acting and pivoting as needed. That is a great recipe towards a sustainable future. Thank you so much, Rishi, for spending the time with us. Thanks, man. I also like to thank you, the audience, for listening as well. This is Kevin Yu of IBM Sustainability Software. See you on a future episode where we continue the discussion to surface how reliability engineering can help us arrive at a sustainable future. Thank you.